Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. I have no idea why I sound like I work for the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Anyway, so after Donald Trump became president, there was something that a lot of people were discussing that we have been waiting for for a long time. No, I'm not talking about impeachment because I don't think that's ever going to happen. But I am talking about his first constitutional crisis. So people said... It was going to happen. It was bound to happen. Trump doesn't play by the rules. He would eventually face something in Congress. And this is finally happening. And it is happening because after Donald Trump and all those Republicans lost all those seats in the midterms, those House seats, uh, Trump had a little temper tantrum, which he does, and he fired his attorney general, Jeff Sessions. Now, I do believe that Jeff Sessions deserved to be fired. But what I don't believe is that he deserved to be replaced by Matthew Whitaker, who is now the acting attorney general and is not qualified for the job in any way, shape or form. In fact, Whitaker is so unqualified for the job that there have been a slew of Republicans coming out saying that he needs to step down. There have been lawsuits filed saying that he should step down, and a lot of people are predicting that this could be the constitutional crisis we've been waiting for. So I decided we should have an expert on to discuss it. So I'd like to welcome Katie Benner to the show. She covers the Justice Department for the New York Times and was part of the team that won a Pulitzer Prize last year for her incredible reporting on workplace sexual harassment. She wrote a piece about Google recently that caused the Google walkout. She has been covering tech and venture capital and the FBI and the Department of Justice and all these places for so long. She's one of the best reporters I know, and I'm really excited to have her on the show today. Stick around afterwards. Um, I'm going to talk to John Kelly about that crazy Facebook story and what is really going on inside Facebook and if Sheryl Sandberg is just as bad as Mark Zuckerberg. A little hint, she is. And so let's get started. All right, let's do it. Uh, Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> should we start with the with with what you do for a living? Should we sure. should we give our listeners a uh, a little little glimpse of that? I think that's a fair place to begin. Uh, <laughs> so maybe I. I I guess I, I chase crises, maybe, is one way of putting in it. In Washington. In Washington. Uh, I started out covering Wall Street, where I covered the financial crisis. And then I moved to California, where I met you, to cover the tech boom and maybe bust. And now Washington, D.C. So, so yeah. right now in D.C., it seems like, I mean, it's seemed like this for a couple of years now, but it really seems like it's like pure chaos right now. There's There's... Sessions is out. Uh, uh, you're laughing uh, with like one of those like, oh my god, I might die soon. Uh, laughs um, in the horror movies. Um, uh, Sessions is gone. Um, uh, very abruptly, it seems. Uh, Whitaker is in, maybe unconstitutionally. Um, can you kind of give us 
a little bit of a lay of the land. Let's, let's start with Sessions. So the question I have about Sessions, and you covered the DOJ, and you're, right. in, you're in the building a lot. You talk to these people. The two questions I have about Sessions is, like, it's one, why did he not go out without a fight? That's the first question. And the second question is, was he really a devil in disguise? Like, was he, was there like a, a larger thesis that he was trying to get across that we just didn't understand? So let's start with the, like, I'm, I'm very curious about why he didn't go out without a fight. Sure, sure. Before we get to Sessions, maybe one way to frame your first question, which is, is everything falling apart and is yeah. the world ending? Yeah. Is to actually, I think that the Whitaker Sessions handover of power is almost a perfect frame for that question. In most administrations, they would have figured out uh, a, a way to change power that would have been considered um, positive for the country. At least you could spin it that way. And here we have a situation where people are already protesting the new acting attorney general, and it's completely the story has gotten out of the White House's hands. It's taken them by surprise, and there are even people discussing whether or not it was constitutional. That's when you know you've already lost. <laughs> you've already lost the narrative. And so you're right. That's why we have this sense always that the that things are falling apart in D.C. Now on Sessions... He, you have to remember, was Donald Trump's first supporter, most ardent supporter, and still really, really, I think, if you poured truth serum into him, has an appreciation for the president. He does. He does. Wow. And I don't think we'll ever hear him say a bad word about him. But even even those Trump said of, what did he call him? Like Gollum or something from... Oh, what hasn't he called him? Um, that's, it's, this is the part I don't understand. Like Sessions seems like he's a, a slimy, squirmy like a little like snake in the grass and he has this agenda that is justified by his evangelical beliefs that and 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 he's probably done things that he shouldn't have done in his career in fact I'm sure he he has we are all sure he has and yet he's okay with with the president calling him all these names and pushing him out and and doesn't fight back I don't get that so in some ways Jeff Sessions is the most straightforward figure in the entire administration. He's deeply, deeply religious. He's driven by those religious beliefs. He is incredibly loyal. And so even though the president has in so many ways humiliated him and treated him poorly, for Jeff Sessions, that is beside the point. Wow. He supported the president once. He's going to continue to support him. And also, let's face it, so much of what the president espouses today, he got from Jeff Sessions. Like Jeff mm -hmm. Sessions helped build so much of his belief system because Donald Trump isn't somebody who came into the White House with what anybody would call a firm belief system. <laughs> I'm trying to find a diplomatic way of saying that. Um, and so when Sessions went to the Justice Department, he his passion was immigration. How do we curb illegal immigration and put an end to it? And how do we even curb legal immigration? He had a partner in the White House in uh, Stephen Miller, and he had a president who was on board with this agenda. So even though Sessions took a lot of shit for the entire duration of his time as the Attorney General... He also got a lot done. If you think about what he did as attorney general, did it, did, it was worth it to him to be able to do all of these things, accomplish all of his goals while taking criticisms from the White House. He managed to curb immigration. Family separations was something that he supported. He made religious freedom a top priority of the Justice Department. He you know, pushed the Justice Department in a direction where they were where they were pushing back on race-conscious policies in schools. They weighed in on the Harvard affirmative action case. Like, these are all things that he cares so, so deeply about um, that a few critics in the White House 
you know, that's worth it to him for all he accomplished. So have you have you met Sessions before? Um, yeah, we've all met Sessions in brief moments in the in uh, at different events. Is it kind of like meeting Voldemort for the first time, or? <laughs> I mean, this is the, like, I, I have to say, I, I wrote a story about how a lot of people in the Justice Department were unhappy working for Jeff Sessions mm. because they felt he was using the department and the casework they did to make, uh, to fight culture wars. That said, nobody said that they didn't like him as a person. He is the most polite and kind person you'll ever meet, even if what you think he's saying is truly horrible. He is incredibly nice. You know, it's uh, it's funny. The uh, secretaries of Hitler said the same exact thing. It's true. It's completely true. They said that they didn't necessarily believe in the things that he was doing, but they they liked him as a person. I think Jeff Sessions is well liked as a personality <laughs> inside of the building. All right, so so um, let's move on to Whitaker real quick. So Sessions gets pushed out last week. Yes. Um, uh, he he resigns with his tail between his legs and squirms his way back to wanting to now be a senator again, right? Um, and and Whitaker comes in, and so you were covering this. Can you tell us? So when you were were you at the DOJ when this happened? Was it like was it literally just like you thought you were walking through a door and it was actually a glass <laughs> door and you hit it uh, head first? Like what what actually transpired in that moment? Well, we'll just talk about day of and then maybe do a little background on the relationship between Whitaker and Sessions because it is an amazing, you know, when the history books look at this administration, it will be such a great subplot. But on the day that it happened, we all knew because the president had said for months that he was going to fire Jeff Sessions after the election. So that was not a secret. So little aside, real quick, why wait till the day after the election? Because uh, doing it before the election, um, people in the White House and the Republican caucus feared would hurt their chances of winning in the midterms. So they, everybody had asked and urged the president to please not do this before the election. Do not you know, sow chaos and raise the question of Mueller and whether or not the Mueller investigation into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia you know, was being obstructed. No Republican up for election wanted to deal with that. So we all knew he was going to wait until after. Justice Department knew could, only because he had said publicly many, many times he was going to fire Jeff Sessions. So, or that he wanted to, or he didn't have an attorney general. So we get to the day of the election. We get to the day after, and pretty much all of the reporters show up at the Justice Department that day, but we are pretty sure that nothing's going to happen. The day after seems absurd. And yet, because we are constantly underestimating this administration's appetite for absurdity there it happened that day it happened so um can you paint the room a little bit about like what it's so what is the justice department when you walk in and where is there a press room do you like say hi to the people that work there Sure. like what's walk us through that a little bit yeah you know the justice department building is actually this extraordinary and awesome building and you walk in and there's a press room that is is significantly smaller than the room we are sitting in right now we are in a a pretty small (laughs) room already so yeah and imagine, uh, you know, f- f- eight cubicles all facing one another with six office rooms uh, surrounding the cubicles where the, um, you know, the networks have their booths so they can record. Um, and we all pile in, close quarters, it's hot and stuffy in there, and we're just sitting around talking about how, you know, should we go get lunch because there's absolutely no way this is going to happen today. How crazy would it be for the president who just had this 
press conference that he's getting good headlines about, you know, he can enjoy a moment, he can pause and do his like, um, you know, <clears throat> the victory lap he's trying to do around winning Wake more seats the in the Senate. Senate. Yeah. It was like, why would anybody hurt their own good news cycle? Because it's Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and then lo and behold, at around 2 p.m., uh, the letters hand delivered to John Kelly from Jeff Sessions Associates and it's game on. Wow. He's out. And so um, at, at the Department of Justice, are your press liaisons, were they like, oh yeah, we knew this was happening or were they like, we had no idea? I mean, is it is it is it as chaotic inside as it appears to be outside? <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, this is a group of people who've been preparing for this day for months, Got it. right? Yep. So I don't think anybody could be taken by surprise by this move. And yet the timing again on the day for most people who watch press cycles and think about media coverage it was a surprising moment to choose because why not have a couple of good days of press as opposed to firing Jeff Sessions and immediately bringing down chaos, absolute chaos, and then a hugely bad news cycle around your new acting attorney general. Okay, so let's get to that part. So this is the part I don't understand. So there's, if you look at... Even a, a lot of Republicans, it's actually, honestly, the people that I've been reading on this topic the most are actually Republican analysts who, uh, you know, folks who have worked in the Republican administrations before. And those are the ones that are being like the most vociferous and the most logical. <laughs> Kellyanne Conway's about husband. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love him so much. I know. Who doesn't love yeah, Kellyanne I, I, Conway's husband? Mr. Kellyanne Conway is the best figure in the administration. He is. I, 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 it's like, you know, if you gave, if you gave me, uh, sometimes they, people are like, if you could go to dinner with anyone, who would it be? Like Gandhi or Elvis or, or uh, Barack Obama. It would be George and Kellyanne Conway. <laughs> I would literally just sit there lapping up my soup and watching them fight. Um, anyway, aside. Uh, so so the, the argument that they're all making is that this is unconstitutional, yes, right? Yes, exactly. That is the argument people are making. And um, so what does that even, like, what are the implications of that? Sure. So I'll try to do the unconstitutional in a nutshell. Uh, basically, what is being argued is that the replacement for the attorney general needs to be Senate confirmed because the attorney general reports directly to the president. Anybody who reports directly to the president needs to be Senate confirmed. Of course, we know that Matt Whitaker was Jeff Sessions' chief of staff. That is not a Senate confirmed position. So for him to vault over all these other people and take the top job and not be Senate confirmed, that is the crux. That is why it's why people argue it's unconstitutional. Now, what the Justice Department is saying, I have their argument in front of me, They're saying that there was a Supreme Court case in 2003 um, that said that uh, a principal officer, in this case, the head of the Office of Management and Budget, was allowed to have a replacement who was not Senate confirmed. Now, the difference in that case and this case is that with the OMB case, there was no other person inside no deputy who could have done the job who was senate confirmed in this case at the justice department you have the deputy attorney general rod rosenstein he has been senate confirmed and you have the solicitor general the the solicitor general is the guy who argues on behalf of the u.s government before the supreme court noel francisco he's been senate confirmed either of them could take the job but but they are not the whitaker personality which is like the believes that the Mueller investigation is bad and 
wants to kiss Donald Trump's feet and everything, right? And that's where the optics get very bad. You've passed two Senate confirmed people over who've worked at the Justice Department and have long, long careers serving the government in this capa- in a capacity similar to what they're doing today for somebody who who is best known for playing for um, the Hawkeyes. Okay, so so is there a, how how does this play out legally? Is there does someone sue to have Whitaker kicked out? Is it, does it go to the Supreme Court? Does Brett Kavanaugh, you know, drink a six pack of beers and like make it all go away? Like what? I'm happens? sure people are drinking a lot of beer. I, I don't. I don't <laughs> well, he likes beer. I mean, who doesn't? Yeah, right, really. Yeah. I, I like mean. beer. You like beer? Uh, <laughs> I love that 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 will always stick in my mind. I know now. Abbott. Now beer's been ruined for me. Yeah, Thanks, exactly. everybody. Yeah. Um, so we're we're going to see a couple of things happen. But yes, I think you can expect this week uh, legal action, um, a lawsuit being filed that challenges the legal authority of Trump's decision to choose Matt Whitaker as the acting attorney general. Now that could push us into the question we've all been flirting with ever since Trump was elected was, when will we have a constitutional crisis? Mm. I don't think anybody in a million years would have thought to themselves, our constitutional crisis is going to be over whether a former college football star who's never really tried very many cases and got his position as U.S. attorney in Iowa through political patronage is going to throw the country into constitutional crisis land because now he runs the Justice Department. I mean, just those words all together don't even make sense, and yet here we are. So in Congress and on the Hill are... You know, you're seeing people like George Conway, of course, Kellyanne Conway's husband, and 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 um, lots of others who are out there saying this is not the right person to be running the Justice Department, um, and they're gonna, you know, you're seeing these things come through. Are do you think that this is actually the moment that Republicans will actually grow a spine no. and fight back? No, no, no. Why? Why would they? What, what's in it for them? What do they gain? Moral authority? I don't think. I mean, do they? Does that? <laughs> what? What would they gain? I. It's a good question. Right, and so this is where um, this is this is where you see this really essential difference between the Democrats and the Republicans, and um, you saw it play out in 2016, and I think we may see it play out again in 2020. Is the Republicans are willing to hold their nose and check the the GOP box for a something bigger than themselves, something bigger than the candidate? Excuse me. So <clears throat> lots of Republicans didn't like Donald Trump, but they voted for him because there was this idea that if we get a Republican in the White House, no matter who it is, preferably a living, breathing person, but whatever, (laughs) we can take back the courts. And the courts have been used to bludgeon our agenda for decades and decades and decades. We can take back the federal courts and maybe even the Supreme Court. And it is worth it to elect this man who we loathe, for some Republicans, not all, but who we loathe, because we can deliver on this huge promise to the party and the base, which is why Trump needed Kavanaugh to get confirmed so badly. If that had blown up, they didn't have a backup candidate. They were all in on him. If that had blown up, you would have seen something terrible happen for the Republicans in the midterms. Now, Democrats are not so good at that. They get really stuck on whether or not they like the person. It's Mm. like, oh, I don't like Hillary, so I can't vote for her. They, they, They haven't figured out what goal it is that they want that will be bigger than whatever terrible candidate they put up. So, you know, imagine, let's just imagine... What's the most horrible thing the Dems could do? Uh, there's like a Chelsea Clinton, um, Chelsea Clinton Al Gore ticket, right? That would be maybe the worst ticket you can imagine. Chelsea Clinton Al Gore, or um, 
Oh, Chelsea Hillary. Oh, Chelsea Hillary. There yes. you go. So uh, the mother-daughter Clinton <laughs> ticket happens. Now, if, if this were Republicans, they'd be like, you know what? Whatever. Yeah. Whatever. This is, this is just a piece of our government takeover. We can deal. But the Democrats, they will not. They'll, oh, this and that. Oh, and I hate the way I she did like her hair. hair. Yeah. And then they, they will lose. So... <clears throat> So this is this is why I don't think you're going to see Republicans pushing back hard on whatever it is that Trump's doing. They have an agenda. They want to push it through. They're, they're not going to take a big moral stand. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, but the goal here – and here's the thing I will say about Trump. I, I think that – I do think that there is a big part of him that is um, – excuse the squirrels that are running on the roof right now. Uh, I do think that there's a big part of him that is a total and utter moron. Uh, I, 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 but there is also a part of him that I think is incredibly smart and strategic. And even what he did with Kavanaugh, like he – he, he's essentially twisted Kennedy's arm to get Kennedy out. Kavanaugh, you know, I mean it was all very, very clever. And – and I and it's very clear that Whitaker is there because Trump is very worried that Don Jr. is going to get indicted, which is sure to happen. Could ha- could be happening as we're recording this podcast. If Don Jr. gets indicted while we're recording this podcast, you're going to hear the mics literally, literally. fall on the floor as you run out the door. <laughs> and I'll be like, "Thanks, Katie, for joining us today." Um, so, um, so it's very clear that he has a strategy, and this is part of it. But the question I have is. Are the Democrats or is anyone doing anything to try to – they know what the strategy is. It is not – it's not like it's a secret hidden thing. Are they doing anything to try to ensure that, that the Constitution of the United States is used effectively and properly? Well, I mean, I think preserved if the Constitution's preserved. And so that's where the question of whether or not Matt Whitaker was constitutionally appointed becomes very, very important. So the Democrats, what they have is they have subpoena power now in the House of Representatives. That well, means not yet. In, in, in January. In January, yeah. We're a long way from January. As we've seen, a lot can happen in a few days. So if if things hold until January... The Democrats will be able to start subpoenaing documents, conversations, conversations between the White House, between the president and Matt Whitaker, John Kelly and Matt Whitaker, to try to to try to put together um, the full portrait of how this appointment happened, you know, how Whitaker was chosen. But again, we're so far from January. <laughs> so in the meantime, the Democrats do not have a lot of power. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Did you know that the average man will shave at least 10,000 times in his lifetime? And yet they'll probably do it with a really bad razor. Well, that should change because it changed for me. I have started using the One Blade Razor and it is amazing. This is a company that invested a million dollars in world-class award-winning shaving experiences that utilize the most advanced shaving technology on the market. The amount of research that they have done is just astounding. They put 12,480 man hours, 730 days of research, and they iterated over a thousand different prototypes before they got this razor. It is a incredible razor. It's called the Genesis. It's individually numbered and guaranteed for life. The reason they guaranteed for life is because they know that they have created the world's best shaving instrument. So it's under warranty forever. It's a closer shave. It's fantastic. One Blade successfully developed a shaving system that can easily and safely deliver you the precision, comfort, and luxury of a barbershop shave in the comfort of your own home. It's a patent-pending system. It's really incredible. You have to check it out. If you are ready to elevate your shaving experience, you can try the One Blade Razor today. 
Listeners of Inside the Hive can go to onebladeshave.com and enter the discount code HIVE, that's H-I-V-E, at checkout for a $20 uh, off their purchase price. Once again, go to onebladeshave.com and enter the code H-I-V-E, Hive, at checkout, and you will save $20. The One Blade is an incredible razor. It's refined. It gives you zero nicks, cuts, razor burn, ingrowing hair, none of that stuff. Uh, the weight of the stainless steel handle is beautiful. It looks like it was designed in some sort of like secret government laboratory. Check it out, onebladeshave.com. Enter the discount code Hive. Okay, so one last question about Whitaker. Um, you wrote a story about him sitting on a board of a company <laughs> that scammed people out of money. Um, okay, I know that this is insane that we're having this conversation about it. Really, it's about the attorney the general. About the attorney general. Is this is this is this someone who? I mean, he's he. I've seen him, you know, talk about things that are. Um, that you makes you scratch your head. I mean, one of the things, and I think you wrote about this too, is that he believes that judges, the way you pick a good judge is, is based on if they read the Bible, uh, uh, if they're, if they're, if they make decisions based on God's law, based on God's law. Um, is he a kind of a, bit of a crack or perceived as a crackpot? So I think he's perceived as a very, very far right, ultra uh, conservative, ultra social conservative. You know, he has made no, um, he, he doesn't not try to hide the fact that he's uh, very, very Christian. Um, when he showed up to his application, when he interviewed to be on the Iowa Supreme Court, he brought his minister with him. I will say that not a lot of their applicants were bringing their ministers and, and priests and rabbis and so forth. Um, so <clears throat> I think that in previous administrations, a figure like Matt Whitaker would be perceived as way, way beyond the pale. But in this administration... When you look at his peer group, he is not so far outside the norm. So just let that sink in for a minute. Wow. And yeah, he was on the board of a company called World Patent Marketing, which has a real Ginsu knife, late night TV commercial feel. And they were supposed to help people patent their inventions and then market them, right? And instead, they just took money and they never filed the patents and never marketed the products. So they were wiping people out of their life savings, et cetera. And they were using Matt Whitaker, his name, to say, we have a former U.S. We have a former uh, U.S. attorney from the state of Iowa. He gives this whole thing some legitimacy because he's a law guy. He's a lawman. He's an attorney. So you know it's legit. Um, are people inside the Department of Justice um, scratching their head? Uh, are they nervous? Are they are they embarrassed? Are they? <laughs> I think that people. I, I will say only this. Um, I've spoken with a lot of different employees at the Justice Department who are career prosecutors who've lived under Bush and Obama. Um, you know, they're really apolitical people. I think they're just deciding whether or not to quit. And is it worse to stay and be complicit in things they think are wrong? Or is it worse to leave and give up their seat to somebody who might actually be a partisan hack? <sighs> Thanks for that. Choices. Um, <laughs> all right, let's move on to some other stories. You've, you've written a lot of stories recently. It's I been a really... It's that's why a, I look a decade older than the last it's, time you uh, It's... Uh, <laughs> It's, um, yeah. All right. Uh, should we talk about uh, Saudi Arabia? Oh, uh, man. Um, I'm sure. And them bludgeoning a, uh, a journalist to death and cutting him into pieces. So you covered that story. Yes. Um, uh, where is it now? 
is, is the first question. And the second question is, um, will, uh, do you think there will be any repercussions for the Saudi king, uh, for for murdering a journalist, essentially. Well, I think just to take a step, the repercussions question, I think I want to ask you, actually, okay. because oh, that is going to be, the repercussion will have to come from the business community because clearly the Trump administration doesn't care. Yeah. So to go back, um, of course, uh, the story we're talking about is Jamal Khashoggi. He was a, a Saudi Arabian writer who was a columnist for the Washington Post, and he was lured into the Saudi embassy and... Uh, murdered or sorry killed because i don't want to imply intent he was killed <laughs> by a, gr- a, gr- a group of men who happened to bring dismemberment equipment with them yeah. and his body's never been recovered and so um you know now we're at a point where canada's intelligence agency has heard audio recordings um from turkey uh where the turkish government which is where the saudi consulate was located where the turkish government is saying is evidence that saudi operatives did murder uh, Jamal and um, you know that these are extremely damning recordings. So we're getting closer and closer to the day when nobody will be able to deny that this terrible uh, and gruesome thing happened. And the Trump administration is likely not going to distance themselves. You have to understand MBS, the um, the future king of Saudi Arabia, is extraordinarily tight with Jared Kushner. He is in so many ways Kushner's um, foreign policy uh, ace, ace, ace up his sleeve. And that is where the Trump administration has forged one of its tightest relationships. So if there is pushback, it will come from your world, the technologists and the business people that MBS has been grooming for two years. Well, that's the thing I think that's so, so fascinating is that, you know, that, that in Silicon Valley, they will take money from pretty much anyone, especially. And one of the things that's, that happened recently, um, is that the over the last couple of years is that pe- more and more people wanted to be y- unicorns they wanted to have billion dollar businesses and uh and these giant funds from Saudi Arabia and from China and and um all these different places all over the world uh where the wealth is is centralized into a certain certain bucket where they were willing to take deals to get in on these companies which overvalued them, um, gave the the investors a little amount of of ownership, and it was just it was just being able to put the bumper sticker on their car that says, "Oh, I'm in Twitter, I'm in Facebook, I'm in this, I'm in that," and um, and these companies, of course, are run by boys mostly uh, who have no understanding of a world outside of Silicon Valley, and I think that that's why you saw MBS is involved in so many different companies. That being said, I mean. There are people like Jeff Bezos and Tim Cook and others that have spent time with this guy, like that should have been, that should have known better, honestly. And um, so, will they continue to take his money? You know, what happens they to do, the I vision fund? That, I think that they should be railed over the coals for it. I think that if they do, I think that it w- it should be the Democratic Congress um, that should use their subpoena power to 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 really embarrass these companies and and do whatever they can to to make sure that they don't because the reper- there have to be repercussions. So what happens to the SoftBank Vision Fund, which is mostly Saudi money? It's a front for Saudi money and it's being plowed into all these tech companies. Well, I, I mean, I think maybe that you'll see like a, 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 a waiting period almost. Like there'll be like a, um, and to see how it plays out and then you'll get, they'll, you know, they'll figure out ways in. They'll, the, you know, the Saudi Vision Fund could, could end up being, you know, putting money into people's LPs 
which then go put into investing, but no one knows where it came I from. I see, put Things it into like the that. venture capital firms themselves and yeah, launder it a little. It's, 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 I'm sure they'll come up with ways to launder it until someone figures it, it out. Is, like it you. is the valley. So it's, yes, it's, I'm sure yeah, they will. It's, um, there's, no, there's no qualms with this. I think the thing that's so, that's so, one of the things that I find so fascinating is that the, the Washington Post hasn't been more aggressive about this, given that, I mean, they have, but like if, if this was... If this was the New York Times, it would still be a front page New York Times story. And I feel like it's kind of like it's kind of gone away a little bit. It resurfaces every once in a while. Right, with news developments. And to be fair, I think the Post has been very aggressive on the story. And I also think that, to be fair, we had a very important midterm election that happened where more people came out to vote than have, I think, in, was it four generations or something or more? Probably much more. And then, of course, we had the ouster of Jeff Sessions. There's been so much yeah. news fighting for that front page space. Yeah. But I think now that the recordings are being circulated amongst the global intelligence community, it's, we're going to have to Do deal with the story again. Do you predict that recordings will, will get out into the public at some point? I don't see how that cannot happen. I don't hope there's... I mean, I, <laughs> that's a difficult question. I'm sure that they will get out. Um, but whether or not we should listen to them, I think, yeah, is a different, different ballgame. Um, what's in it for Turkey? Is it is it a power struggle? Is it is it like a, just a like hey look we know we've been listening to you the whole time? Could you imagine what it must have been like for the spies, the Turkish spies that were listening on the Saudi consulate? It's like a Saturday morning, and then all of a sudden they yeah. hear this. They're like, this is the best thing that ever happened to us. What's in it for them? Well, Saudi Arabia has been this rising huge superpower in the region. You've had this sort of alliance between the Saudis and uh, the Trump administration, very very closely tied. Um, Erdogan has fallen out of favor in so many ways, and this gives them leverage again in the region. Um, well, I hope that I hope that there are repercussions. I hope they come from from the Trump administration. I know they won't, so I hope that in turn they come from Silicon Valley. Well, I think that the repercussions are happening now in tech in a way that we've seen with the election as well. So, if you look at the way the Saudis were using Twitter to crack down on dissidents and to silence voices, it was amazing. They were able to game the algorithm by paying scores hundreds of young men, thousands of young men to just tweet all day long and to tweet misinformation, to game hashtags, to game trending topics. It was so easy to manipulate that platform that it really takes the wind out of Twitter's sails when they say, the reason we shouldn't be regulated and the reason we should be left alone is because of free speech. If it's that easy to game your platform, if a repressive government can control what people see on Twitter, you can no longer make the free speech argument. Yep. So you're seeing all of these things happen between the election, between the Saudis. Saudis even planted a spy inside of Twitter who was using their back end to crazy. steal information about people who were using the service. It's just harder and harder and harder for these tech companies to say, we shouldn't be regulated. So you've written a little bit about about spies and stealing secrets and things like that in tech. Um, I wrote a story last this year, I believe, about spies working inside these tech companies and um, crazy. It's is this as rampant in your reporting as absolutely, uh, <clears throat> absolutely. I mean, if you think about. Um, you know, uh, a few years ago, hackers wanted to get into the Office of Personal Man- Personnel Management because they wanted to steal government social security numbers and home addresses and personal information about the employees who are working for the government. If you were to break into OPM today, you could get, yeah, 
some, some, some good information. If you could break into that person's Facebook account or Twitter account or Instagram account, you would get so much rich information about somebody. Basically what happened is remember when everybody was freaked out about stellar wind and mm-hmm. all of these Bush era spy programs and yeah. Edward Snowden was like, Oh my God, I can't believe that we're collecting metadata on people's phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> Facebook has managed to collect data on us and Google more so has managed to collect data on us that the Bush administration would have would have killed for <laughs> that John Ashcroft would have wept with joy to have, and it's all housed in these, um, you know, publicly traded private sector companies that <clears throat> do not have. Let's face it, they don't have real procedures for how they handle that data. It's country by country. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think they really realize the gravity and the power of what they hold until maybe this year. And they're starting to grapple with it. And they've become the richest, best, biggest targets for any foreign government who wants to know more about the United States. Russia was able to spread misinformation well because it studied us well, because we as individuals gave Russia all the information they needed about us. Are we doing the same thing to other countries? Like, is, is there, are there secret programs going on in, in government in the U.S. where we're trying to do the same thing over in Russia and China, and is it successful? I will just say that it would be a huge missed opportunity if the United States was not also looking at all of the personal data that citizens are voluntarily throwing up online every single day. Um, and again, it does make at least me pause and say, why am I throwing up all this personal data online? Oh, me too. What has it gotten me? Yeah. It didn't make me closer to my friends. It didn't make things better. And now there's somebody out there who can credibly mimic me because they've just read enough about me online. Yeah, no, it's I, I, I barely use any of these things anymore. Somebody... A family member, I recently had to give them some money and they were like, just Venmo me. And I was like, I don't use that anymore. Like, I'll I'll give you cash when I see you or write you a physical check. Nick has gold, like, yeah. under the mattress. He's You're like, actually just sitting gold on $100,000 in, in dollar bills right now and you're under your seat. Just don't take any on the way out. Um, all right, so we only have a little bit of time left. I wanted to get to another story, which, uh, it honestly, looking at your byline, I mean, I don't actually know how you have time to be here right now. Uh um, maybe you're writing a story as you're talking to me, uh, which would not be uh, too difficult. Um, so uh, I've got two last stories I want to get to. And uh, the, the last one I'll save because it's more fun than anything. <laughs> but um, uh, let's talk about the story you wrote about Andy Rubin and Google recently. Sure. So I have no idea how you just kind of went over to that side of the universe <laughs> for a little bit. But Tell listeners a little bit about that story, and uh, and then let's talk about the repercussions of it. Sure, that's just quickly. Remember, I did used to cover technology. I know you did, but I didn't you know. move to I didn't move to Washington D.C. until January. Got it. So okay. I've only been in D.C. for like ten months. Got um, it. I'm so sorry for your loss. It's, it was really rough, but uh, so. We started working on that story last July. I just published a story about sexual harassment in the venture capital industry and received some outreach. I don't cover Google. Luckily, though, we hired an extraordinary reporter named Dai Wakabayashi, who is like the nicest, best colleague and also just a great human. And so we hired him in August, I believe, to cover Google. And so then he and I started reporting the story together. I abandoned him for Washington. He continued reporting. Uh, every once in a while, I would find time to pursue leads. And then we had what I would call just uh, one of those things. And again, I'm going to credit Die on this, being able to nail down that $90 million number, mm. which happened, I think, 
around this so, fall. So for people listening, just give the give sure. 140 So characters. we were looking at, you know, how does Google treat how does Google treat men versus women in the workplace? And Andy Rubin, who was this lauded technologist who created the Android operating system, who is one of the reasons why Google is a global powerhouse company, because you probably are using Google on your phone every day if you don't have an iPhone. <clears throat> he, uh, he, he, he forced a woman to perform oral sex on him. Now, the company investigated this, and they found that it was credible. Um, so we were able to get results on that investigation. So we knew that that had happened. But we also knew that Andy had left with some sort of exit package. Now, this is the crazy thing about Google. Often companies pay off the women lots of money to stay quiet to protect the executives. And they pay the executives lots of money because they keep them around. They get compensated. Google instead paid Andy Rubin $90 million. They felt so bad they had to fire him. For That's, four- that's insanity. It's insanity. It's an insane amount of money. And the reason is mind-blowing. He sexually assaulted somebody. They decided in their own investigation, they found he had credibly sexually assaulted somebody. Felt so bad about having to fire him that they gave him $90 million. So when Dai has this number, we know that the story is going to go forward. (laughs) There's no way it cannot. And what's interesting is that while the number, the headline number is huge on Andy, we also have other examples of men in the story who behave badly at Google, who've abused their positions of power, and also been richly compensated for their behavior. They've been allowed to stay in their jobs and make tons of money. They've been pushed out the door, but given a big compensation package. And after the stories come out, I'm sure this is no surprise to you, Nick, because I know that you're hearing these things all the time too. We have been getting a lot of incoming people saying, if you thought that was bad, listen to this. So do you think that, so the, the question I have is, Google always had this, which I think is complete and utter bullshit, um, uh, trademark that don't be evil. And yet it seems like one of the most evil companies there is right now next to Facebook. Um, you know, they're creating this operating system in China that will, you know, hide results to help the Chinese government. They, um, they're working with the department of defense on AI technology. There, there are all these things they're doing that to me, seem incredibly um wrong uh and um and when you look at this history that you reported of these massive payouts this is something that's been going on for a long long time um and uh is this a company that is do you think that the people that run it or what is their justification in their mind is it is it that they believe that this is okay? Is it that, that it is an evil company? Is it that, what, what, what do you think it is from the reporting you've done? I mean, I think Andy's a great example. I, I think that Larry Page truly felt terrible about having to get rid of somebody who had made his company and his dream so much larger than he ever could have done it on his own. So if you're looking at life through that lens only, was this person helpful to me? And did this person help this company? And was he a huge contributor? Those answers are yes. That is such a strange way to look at life, this very binary black and white. Silicon Valley. Exactly. It doesn't look at the humanity of the situation, which is, did this person with so much power over all of his employees force somebody to perform oral sex on him against her will? An act that he has denied, but that Google's own investigation found credible. You know, so it's like... 
not having any feeling for the human, for the humane part of the way we live our lives is I think something about Silicon Valley yep. and tech companies in general that is problem. My theory on the, on the tech companies and, the, and this, this having no empathy and humanity is that, that these people, and you've met them, I've met them, that they are, uh, that they lack empathy as human beings. They have, they have social interaction problems they all and they have they're born that way and that they are drawn to technology because they think technology can help mediate interactions but when they build the technologies they do so without thinking about empathy because they don't necessarily have much of it and so now you have half of the world using these technologies to 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 do things and to interact with each other and communicate yeah but there's no empathy in the in the software right. so it doesn't translate so that's why you have all the vitriol and hate and everything that's online and i think that we kind of overlook um these founders and their responsibility for this and it's terrifying i mean look at facebook this idea their mission statement of connect the world or whatever it was like the cell phone that we're holding in our hands obviated the need for Facebook. I don't need this online desktop platform to connect me to all of my friends. I can just use my mobile phone and be on a messaging app with them all of the time. I don't need Facebook anymore. So he doesn't have... He doesn't have a vision for the company beyond that. Mm. And then what happens to the company beyond that? He doesn't have a vision to stop the bad things. So he doesn't understand that the way that people interact with this platform now that it's not communicating with friends, now that it really is getting information that he needs to hold himself to a higher standard. Um, but he doesn't see, he doesn't see the problem. Yeah. I think that, um, I've said this before on this podcast, but I, I truly do believe that we'll turn around one day and I don't know if it'll be five years or 15 or 50, but we will turn around and we'll say, we'll look at social media and collectively as a society realize it was a really, really bad idea. Will that be before or after the end of democracy? <laughs> I think probably after because we'll be sitting around our campfires in caves. Right. We won't have laptops anymore. Uh, we won't have la- and we'll have nothing else to do. And someone will be like, oh my God, I wish I miss Facebook. And someone will be like, no, you don't. The reason we're sitting in this cave right now around this fire eating a rat. Right. It's because the Junta took away our, our mobile devices. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, uh, <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, so last, last couple of questions. Um, uh, Rod Rodenstein, 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 Rosenstein, Rosenstein. I got it right. Uh, he seems like a good guy. He's, right? he's a pro- he was a prosecutor in Maryland for a really long time. He seems like a legit law and order, very Republican. So as you can imagine, like he loves mandatory minimum sentencing. He's very very GOP, but he also uh, he also likes the law yes, and the Constitution. I guess I mean that. I don't, I don't, maybe <laughs> so, I don't agree with this. One thing I one thing I have found it's really fascinating. Um, one thing I have found in the last couple of years is that. The, maybe it's the silver lining for me personally, and I, I'm sure there are people that feel the same way, but I, there are people who are Republicans who I don't agree with their philosophies and their ideals around government and, 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 and social issues and economic issues. And three, four years ago, I would have vehemently disagreed with them about those things. But now some of these people, I actually, like Bill Kristol, for example, mm-hmm. right? A I, good example. I, I legitimately... Um, think he's a good guy because he really he sees through the bullshit of trump and uh and 
George Conway, people like that. And so I'm like, okay, I can respect you if you're a Republican with these different viewpoints. Yeah. I cannot respect you if you <laughs> don't see what's going on. Right. And I think it's interesting. We've seen in this election, I, I just pulled out my notebook because I, I had a meeting with somebody yesterday who said that sometimes we need to step back in, in life, definitely in Washington, and instead of fighting over whether or not we're winning or losing as Democrats or Republicans and say, you know, what does success look like for the United States of America in 50 years from now? And the minute you pull the lens back even that far, suddenly a lot of the questions and a lot of controversy we're having right now, everything kind of falls into place. Like, um, what, is, what does it mean for the U.S. to be successful 50 years from now? Does that mean supporting MBS and this like hor- like horrifying regime in Saudi Arabia? Probably not. Yeah. Does it mean, you know, fo- possibly violating the Constitution with this appointment of an acting attorney general who who now nobody is happy with, you know, it's like, shouldn't we be thinking about a solution beyond what's happening day to day for the larger success of the country? It's, it's a very like pie in the sky way of speaking and thinking, and it's not something any of us do anymore, but as a thought exercise, it can be nice. Do you think so? So with Rod, do you think that, um, that he, you, the, the story about him, you know, he was going to wear a wire. Uh, um, you've worked on these stories uh, and claimed the 25th Amendment and all these things. Do you think that he is going to be someone who can, in the Justice Department, help ensure that it doesn't become a constitutional crisis? Yeah, I mean, again, going back to this idea of what's good for the country in a bigger way. Rod Rosenstein's a Republican. He should probably support the Republican elected president. Um, and yet he, he has never denied he has said those things. He has quibbled over the context and he's quibbled over whether or not he was being sarcastic, but he's never denied saying them. And I think that that also speaks to a, a deeper fear within the department that's reflected by his own employees um, that we have an executive branch led by a president that that would need that kind of monitoring and where we would ask those sorts of serious questions. And that has not changed, you know, since he said those things um, after James Comey was fired. It seems like forever ago that James Comey was fired, but it that's when like he said everything seems, This morning <laughs> seems like forever ago. I know. I can't believe Jeff Sessions was only fired like five or six days ago. It's, I feel like it was a month. <laughs> the anonymous New York Times op-ed was like only like four five weeks ago. It's oh like, it's insane. Wait, did that happen? Was the, that a the, dream? No, that did happen. Um, Donald Trump has only been president for 45 years now. It's <laughs> it doesn't feel like that long. Um, well, I think I think that it would be interesting if White House reporters started asking Trump um, today. You know, say you win in 2020, what are your plans for your post presidential life? Because I wonder if he has them, or I wonder if he thinks that once he wins his second term, he can win a third. I think he absolutely believes that he, he when he when he wins his second term he'll win a third. I, I think the other thing is that all of this talk right now about the Florida election being rigged because we're still counting votes and they're all swaying towards Democrats is a prelude for what will happen in 2020. Um, and I do believe if if we don't have a constitutional crisis um, in the next two years, I do believe that the biggest constant the the one that will inevitably be the biggest is if Trump doesn't win by a margin, by hair, and he refuses to step down, which you can completely imagine happening. Yes, absolutely. So a question out here in California, I'm in DC, which is like being inside of 
You know, it's like, it's, it's impossible it's to like escape. being stuck in an elevator with politicians. Exactly. Every day. A lot of, lot of Navy blue blazers. Out here in California, you guys are seen as the resistance. And the resistance. Even <laughs> the resistance. You know, you have uh, State AG Becerra, who's been happy to push back on the Trump administration. Um, Jerry Brown has yep. been one of Trump's biggest antagonists. So what's going on with the new governor? Will you guys continue to be the resistance? What does that look like? Uh, you know, what's going to happen with well, the first rule is of resistance is you cannot talk about what's <laughs> happening inside the resistance. Um, I think I, I've, I've actually spent quite a bit of time with Gavin Newsom, the new governor, and um, like everyone, he's got larger plans and larger goals and, you know, wants to make a name for himself. And I think he will, he's already had some rhetoric that's anti-Trump. Um, Jerry Brown, it, it, the benefit he has is he's been doing this a long, long time. Um, I know people that work with him uh, that told me that after Trump won, he wasn't necessarily particularly as worried as everyone else because he said, you know, I've seen this happen before. I've seen these guys come and go. Um, and I don't know if that will be the case. I don't know how how the governor here, the new governor is going to, um, you know, come after him. He has a little bit already, but but it'll be interesting to see. But I think that the thing that you're starting to see, New York is the same way. Like the, you know, the New York AG and Como and everything, we, you know, is 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 stepping back against Trump in ways that they they are capable of. And I think the the test of it all, it's one thing to talk shit about Trump and tweet at him, and you know, which is just a total fucking waste of time. Honestly, yeah, just delete Twitter. <laughs> just delete Twitter. But um, the 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 test, I believe, will be you know coming back to Don Jr. I, we all know that Don Jr. is going to get indicted. There's going to be something that will happen. He lied to Congress. He did things that were completely illegal based on the election. His hair. They're going to indict his him hair. for his hair. He, he, yeah, he's, um, his tan, the whole thing. <laughs> um, uh, but and if he gets indicted by the federal government, he his dad can pardon him. And off he goes, like no big deal. If he gets indicted by a state AG, it's a whole different story. And I mm -hmm. think that the true test of California, New York, places like that will be if they actually um, do something in that form. Well, they go after bigger targets. Yeah. And mm -hmm. if they, and, and they have a tremendous amount of power that, that, you know, I had a former um, uh, antitrust attorney on here recently. Um, and she was talking about how Individually, these AGs are kind of limited because they're small. Uh, they're small offices with a few lawyers. But when they get together, they're incredibly powerful. And I think the question is, is if they actually start to realize that and put their resources together and go after some 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 big fish. So monitor all the flights between JFK and <laughs> SFO and LAX. The, the reporters <laughs> speaking in there. All right, so very last question. Do you think that... Um, the Mueller investigation is going to have an impact on this presidency. So I am skeptical that the Mueller investigation is going to be this silver bullet that the progressives are looking for that'll take Trump out of office. I don't know that that sort of silver bullet can even exist. We yeah. are we are an, <clears throat> a representation. We're a rep, we're a democracy where we elect our representatives, and we elected him. So <clears throat> there's that. Um, but I do think that the Mueller investigation will create a credible roadmap for other investigators after him who are curious about things like the president's finances, what happened with Trump Inc. after the election, 
has the president's family grown even wealthier since? And and how you're talking about once Trump leaves office, or no, once the report is out. You know, I think that no matter what it says, it will raise really good questions for others to to take a deeper look at. Even if there's no indictment, even if Mueller doesn't find any criminal activity, he could find activity that isn't doesn't rise to the level of criminality, but that definitely asks that asks us as voters to decide whether or not it's the sort of behavior we want in the White House. Now, in 2016, it was the sort of behavior we wanted in the White House. Fast forward to 2020, with all of those questions live uh, and underscored and highlighted by Mueller uh, with additional information, and four years of activity within the White House, whether it's rescinding rights for transgender people, whether it's diminishing rights for uh, gay and lesbian people in the United States, whether it's uh, you know beating back on race-conscious policies that have helped people, uh, you know, helped non-white people in this country, um, whether it's the death of Obamacare, you will see a preponderance of of both evidence and actions that are going to ask us all to answer the question: Do we want? Donald Trump in the White House again. <clears throat> and it's hard for me to believe that all of that combined isn't going to impact the answer we give. And I think that, I mean, that was a very eloquent way of, of saying it all. And I think that the, that the, it's not, the hope is not that the 33% who would vote for Donald Trump if he went out on Fifth Avenue and shot someone will change their mind. The hope is that those 100,000 people in the middle are the ones that see this. The people who didn't vote. Yeah. Well, the 91 million people who didn't vote. Um, last, last, last question, actually, is <laughs> after you said this, is there's, I, I forget the number, it's like 25 like a, a, cases against Trump right now. It's an insane number. I don't even remember. You can Google it uh, as, as we're talking. Are any of these going to have any impact on him? Or is it just, is it just like mosquitoes and it itches for a little while and it's really annoying and then it goes away? Well, I think that, if he loses cases in court, there will be an impact. It will mean that he's found to be guilty or he's had to settle. <clears throat> but whether or not, again, the question seems to be like, will it impact his his time as the president of the United States? I don't think so. He is, he is uniquely um, unbowed by scandal and by shame. Things that would have driven other people out of office just because yeah. they'd be so horrified that it had come to light, and they would say, "I can no longer besmirch, uh, you know, the reputation of this office with my presence here." He is—he is never going to say those words. I can no longer, you know, be yeah. here because I will bring shame upon this office. No, he's the the the, the whole point of it is shame. I remember when um, uh, when the the grab them by the ex. Um, uh, tape came out, and I and I said to Mark Leibovich, who had spent a lot of time with Trump, I said to him, um, "This, uh, this he's got to be totally so embarrassed by this. He's got to feel terrible." And Mark said, "There's absolutely no. He loves it. He literally loves it. He loves mm -hmm. the attention. He loves the scandal. He loves that all people are doing is talk about him." And here we are, three years later, still talking still about talking him. about him. Katie, thank you so, 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 so much. It's I fun will, to be here. I will let you get back to writing 75 <laughs> stories. Thanks. Thank you so much. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So a few weeks ago, I was running through the airport and someone stopped me and said, hey, is that the away travel suitcase? And I said, yes, it is. And they were like, I have to see it. And I gave someone a little two-minute demo of this suitcase and right there in front of me, they pulled out their phone and they bought one. It is not just a suitcase, it's like the suitcase. 
Um, Away Travel is a company that has thought through every aspect of modern travel. It is not traditional in any way, shape, or form. Uh, They have come up with all these different things that we face, these problems we face when we travel, and they have solved them. So for example, the suitcases are incredibly lightweight. Uh, They're durable German polycarbonate or aluminum alloy. One of my favorite features is they have a an optional TSA-compliant ejectable battery built right into the suitcase that can pop out so you can charge it. And you can charge your phone up to five times. I have used it hundreds of times, all the time. It's incredible. Uh, they, they have this compression system so that you can overfill your suitcase and it kind of expands and compresses. My favorite feature, and I know this sounds crazy, but my favorite feature is the wheels. They have these 360-degree spinner wheels, so you don't just pull your suitcase by the handle. You can wheel it, turn it, twist it. You can do all these things with it. It's like, it's like a little sports car in your hands. Um, TSA-approved combination locks, removable washable laundry pouch. The suitcases are also beautiful. They come in lots of different colors. I have black. I bought my wife a white one. I got my kids the kids' version. They have these little cute ones for kids. Uh, We went on a trip with my family, and we all had these matching incredible suitcases, and they were zipping all over the place. Um, They also offer a 100-day trial uh, that gives travelers the experience, but I guarantee there's no way you are trying to return this thing. It is incredible. It changes your entire travel experience. Uh, right now, they're going to give uh, listeners of the Hive $20 off a suitcase. All you have to do is go to awaytravel.com slash Hive and use the promo code Hive. You know how to spell it, H-I-V-E. Once again, awaytravel.com slash Hive. Use the promo code Hive. You'll get $20 off. Uh, you know, Because this is the season, everyone wants to get away. You should get away with the Away Travel suitcases. They're incredible. Once again, awaytravel.com slash Hive. Use the promo code Hive and save yourself $20. Go get a set today. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton, and I have my very special, lovely, kind editor, John Kelly. John, Hi, Nick. Great to be how here, are you? as usual. I, it's a treat. So I I, uh, I think we should, if we were to name this podcast something, it would be called Fire and Ice, because you just told me there's a snowstorm coming to you guys in, in New York, and here it's, of course, on fire in California. Which is terrifying, um, but there is something that is on fire even more, figuratively speaking, of course, and that is Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you read the insane story in the New York Times about Sheryl Sandberg and all the things she's been hiding and doing wrong and whatnot? You know what's funny is that was one of those stories, and these things, you know, maybe happen realistically not more than once a month, but once every. Uh, between a week and every two weeks, probably every two weeks, where you hear about something and you just have to drop everything to to like to read it, whether it's for confirmation bias, shock value. Um, you know, very very few stories fit into this category. Your Theranos story a year or two ago did uh, the the Ronin work on um, Les Moonves and and um, Eric Schneiderman and obviously the um, you know uh, Jody Cantor and Megan Toey's work uh, as well, uh, maybe Bill Cohan's work on Les Moonves' masturbation in his doctor's office and Trump taxes, et cetera, et cetera. This was one of those stories where people just looked stunned. I mean, I was just looking at at, um, at our colleagues' faces as they were uh, scrolling through the story, and it's jarring for a number of reasons. I, I want to hear your opinion because you're the expert here, but. I think that many people close to Facebook or who've covered Facebook and are familiar with the company 
have long known that you don't get to be in a Sheryl Sandberg position unless you are um, of monstrous character, unless you unless you take no prisoners, are just ruthless. It's um, this I should reiterate has nothing to do with gender at all. You can't be the operational well, lead of one of the world's largest companies unless you see the world in a very binary, good or bad, kill or be killed way. But Sandberg, more than anyone, has been a humanizing force, and I think that this really opened people's eyes to uh, to a very, very different nature of her character. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, the reality is is that, um, you know, Jezebel had a, a, a good op-ed uh, this week, uh, and the title is Maybe Someone Should Lean Out. Um, and I think <laughs> that, um, of course, with a, a big scowling face of Sheryl Sandberg, I think that that Cheryl, look, Cheryl has always had political ambitions, and people have always assumed that those political not anymore, ambitions, pal. That, that, that well, shit no, but is people over. Pe- people have always con- assumed that those political ambitions uh, would only come out in a situation where she was um, actually running for office. And I think what the story has actually proven and shown is that uh, they've been out the whole time, just in secret, you know. And I think yeah. that. Um, you know, from from day one at, at Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg has been willing to fall on anyone's sword for the company, and I think that's one of the things that separates him from folks like Jack Dorsey, who kind of, you know, don't right. necessarily fall on swords. Um, and uh, and I think with with you know, I remember hearing a story years and years and years ago with when Newsfeed was, um, uh, you know, the company was being completely attacked for Newsfeed because it invaded people's privacies and so on. And uh, and Mark, there was a, a bunch of employees that were supposed to come out and speak about it uh, that had been involved in it. Mark was like, you know what? Let's just blame let's just blame me, um, and I'll take it. It's fine. And I think he's done that with the Russia stuff. I think he's done it with everything. And really, what this story showed, and what a lot of people have been hearing in Silicon Valley, is that so much of this was Cheryl, um, and that she has a kind of take no prisoners. Uh, um, vicious mentality when it comes to defending the company, uh, and then she comes out and plays plays nice, and and there's really two Cheryls, you know. Um, I think there's there's one Mark. It's very clear that he's a megalomaniac. That he uh, Facebook is everything to him, and there's nothing else. And um, and you know he's just gonna keep doing what he's doing. Uh, but when it comes to Cheryl, there's the person who comes out and plays nice and apologizes in front of Congress. And then the person, um, you know, in the back room who's ordering, uh, you know, takedowns and, and and fake stories about people being supported by George Soros and so on. Um, and uh, and yelling at her director of um, security for um, for researching if Facebook played a, a role in uh, in the Russia meddling with the election and uh and I, it's just i think for me it's very refreshing to finally see this come out um into, well you know into just to be provocative for a second I, I i think that a lot of people could buy that cheryl sandberg had this very um uh impactful feminist um compassionate uh ex- exterior and also had to have you know uh, been tough as nails just to accomplish what she did but i think that the some of these tactics are just like amoral, deeply they're, unethical. They're straight out of they're straight out of um, a Republican playbook. You know, they you know, are. They're, they're, I was thinking a lot of the um, 
they they are, but but they are um, they are below uh, many levels. I, I was thinking a lot of um, of Lee Atwater, you know, who ran uh, George Herbert Walker Bush's campaign and and um, uh, did some of the most vulgar, appalling uh, race baiting in the form of commercials uh, that ended up defeating Dukakis. And you know, George H. W. Bush is this this lovely, beloved patrician uh, character, and you know he he sort of bit the bullet and had his um, had his guy do the dirty work for him. This is even more intense because it seemed like Cheryl oversaw this directly. I guess Bush did. Um, you could argue himself. It's hard to get by. It's really hard to get by, and, and I think that. Um, it's be you know amoral and unethical are obviously words that one associates with with Facebook, but um, this is almost to do this is um, is almost unhuman uh, to me, and I, and I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but it it just is the apotheosis of this sort of computer programmer, unsentimental, non-humanities trained uh, uh, type of executive leadership that exists in Silicon Valley, and it is scary. What they are responsible for is so significant and appalling and terrifying and seismic and the fact that they would go to such great lengths and, and, and to invoke even further division and hatred to, to, to take no blame. I, I don't know people like that and I never want to. Uh, well, one thing that I think is so crazy is that, um, that, that the board is standing behind them. They put out a statement today saying um, that, you know, uh, that they totally stand behind Mark and Cheryl, that they made all this stuff clear to Congress and that, um, you know, they're upping security efforts and fighting abuse and so on and so forth. And, um, and that the, and, you know, I mean, the thing that I find so shocking is that. And the stock price um, is also basically flat today too, right? I mean, it's at like 144 and a half. Yeah, it's down. Yeah. It's like a tiny, down a tiny, little tiny, bit. little bit. Yeah, but it's it has, it was not affected. That's the part. That's what I was going to say is what I find astounding is that, that Wall Street, doesn't look wall street that people can invest money in in lots of different companies to make lots of money and and it just boggles my mind that they're willing to invest in this particular company um uh you know i i often ask people who work in tech or have worked in tech like what the most evil company out there is and they have a really hard time just just you know deciding between amazon and facebook uh, and I do think Amazon is next. They're going to have Google's their, giving uh, them a run for their money of late. Yeah, and they're they're going to have their PR beating. That's it's going to happen whether they like it or not. It's starting to happen with the the uh, Amazon headquarters. But but back to Facebook. I think you know Facebook. It, it, the, I, the the fact that these investors are, are sticking around for this. There's been some reports I was reading today that predict that it, the stock will fall further, which I I think is great because it is the only thing that Mark and Cheryl have probably actually pay any attention to, although it doesn't mean that they're going to be any better people as a result of it. They're, the MAUs are going to be down. Um, uh, stories could drive uh, growth further, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to add more monetization. You know, Facebook's down 20% year over year right now, um, and uh, and I think that it'll continue to drop. So, there's that. The other thing that's going on at Facebook is that um, there are more instances of Facebook being used uh, in these kind of ethnic cleansings going on around the world, and Facebook is doing absolutely nothing uh, to, to stop it. They keep saying they're going to, and, and, and nothing seems to, to be happening. And, you know, there's a, a story today about how um, the Nigerian police are saying that 
uh, that there there are people that are being murdered um, based on stories being shared on Facebook um, and on WhatsApp, and uh, and the the company does nothing to stop it from happening. So yeah, it's scary. I'm just looking at um, Google Finance now, and Facebook stock today looks kind of like um, a uh, a chasm uh, started. You know. <clears throat> Pre-trading hours at one forty-three and a half, something like that, and it it dipped presumably in response to the story and the uncertainty and the news that Zuckerberg was going to make an announcement. Zuckerberg makes his announcement. It says in his announcement, as you noted, that he's not stepping down as board chairman, and then you just see this rally. And um, yeah, as you've said before many times, you've said it on this podcast, you've you've, you've said it in your written work. Um, it it is a. Uh, a, a very complex issue for investors. They 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 love this company. They love this leadership team. They know they're totally fucking evil, and they don't care. Well, they uh, um, and I don't honestly don't think that, that Zuckerberg cares all that much. Uh, as someone pointed out online today, Mark Zuckerberg hadn't made a comment about the story that was written, um, but he had spent the afternoon uh, or the day uh, liking um, memes on Facebook uh, about Roman history um, where people are joking the floor is lava and things like that and uh, Mark Zuckerberg thought it was very funny so um, uh, so there you go scary yeah all right, I, I forgot that he, right, Roman history is one of his, um, his oh yeah conquering con- conquering the universe that's all that matters Carthage um, right yeah Car- Carthago Delende Est or something like that I, I too waste a lot of time <laughs> learning Latin so I'm uh, except that he's a billionaire, and I'm talking to you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you're a better person, John. Oh, thanks, Sometimes. Nick. Thank you so much. Sometimes. <laughs> um, all right, John, it's been real, and it's been fun. Uh, actually, one quick question before yeah. we bounce. Uh, I'm over here in California as all these fires are going on, um, and you're over there in New York. And, um, and the whole Amazon thing uh, seems to have sparked quite a bit of um, vitriol from residents in the New York area uh, and pe- and elsewhere where they feel like they were kind of played by Amazon. What What is the word on the street there? Are people excited that Amazon's coming, that it might create some jobs, or are they pissed off that they got a $1.5 billion tax break to do it? You know what's funny? Um, I, I think pe- people are actually – if you live in Queens or if you live on the Upper East Side, um, you're looking at this personally as, as a small real estate boon. Um these are knowledge workers who are going to be buying real estate and um, and elevating prices. And what has been a soft market in kind of middle tier Manhattan real estate will probably uh, get a, a resounding boom out of this. So so we have some certainly some colleagues who I think are are, are excited about that. Um, Cuomo did a good job of uh, taking credit for it and then leaving all the questions to De Blasio, who's generally sort of flat footed in, in in these matters. Um, my sense is. You know, uh, nobody here really cares. It, it, it's, it seems like it's, um, it's an abstraction. It's, it, it's still years away. But it is, um, for people who are, are frustrated at Bezos for running this kind of sham um, uh, b- bidding process, I, I don't know. I have to admit to you that I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, this whole thing was an elaborate sham, and it probably is heartbreaking to the political hopes of mayors of Austin and Newark and, and other places that really did want this and, and may have truly deserved it. 
But Jeff Bezos, richest guy in the world, like, guess how you get there? You know what you're going to do, but you pretend it's something else, and you negotiate, negotiate, negotiate until you get what you want. And then I will say, the one thing that has pissed people off is he has um, uh, won the right to, among among other concessions, install a helipad at uh, at Amazon uh, HQ2, so or HQ2.5 or 2.3 or whatever it is. So presumably Bezos, who owns real estate in Manhattan, will just be um, uh, chopping over so he doesn't have to take the uh, 59th Street Bridge. Well, I wish you the best of luck here in um, uh, here in California. We uh, we're just trying to you know put out some fires, it's, and it sounds like you're just going to be freezing yourselves to death. So uh, if we make it through the next few years, by the time that Amazon actually opens their headquarters and climate change does not destroy the universe, um, hey, maybe it'll work out for you guys. Godspeed, Nicholas. Godspeed. I will. Uh, I'll see you next week for our special Thanksgiving episode, uh, which right. you don't want to miss. Thanks to my guest this week, Katie Benner. She was fantastic, informative. You should follow her all over the place and see what she is writing about. She's one of the best. Thanks, of course, to John Kelly for sticking around afterwards to talk about Cheryl Sandberg. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find this on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review there. <gasps> thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, One Blade and Away Travel. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. If you listened this far, and I don't know why you would, uh, and you followed me on Twitter and you saw me tweet about a new puppy we got and we were trying to come up with a name for it, we decided the name is Pinecone. My three-year-old named him that. So it's stuck. Thanks for playing along. Anyway, folks, I'll see you all next week for a special Thanksgiving episode. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.